Chapter 11, Part 2 of Jesse James, My Father by Jesse James, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trial for Train Robbery, Part 2 A surprising development was when Lowe denied last evening that he had ever made a written confession or statement or had ever signed his name to one. Mr. Walsh had a copy of the Star of last October with Lowe's confession in full printed on the first page. Mr. Walsh questioned him about it and questioned him again closely this morning. Mr. Walsh read the printed confession. It tallied in every particular with the story told yesterday and today by Lowe on the witness stand. Lowe said when asked about it, I never did write down a word about the robbery. I never dictated a statement to a stenographer or to anyone else, and I never signed my name to any statement or confession. Lowe stuck to it in spite of all questioning, that he never made a written confession or statement. I told the police and detectives the whole truth, he declared, and if they wrote it down, that's their business. Did they write it down in your presence? No, sir. The cross-examination of Lowe by Frank P. Walsh, attorney for Jesse James, gave an idea of what the plan of the defense would be in regard to his testimony. Mr. Walsh questioned Lowe for two hours last evening and resumed the cross-examination when court opened this morning. It was a very skillful arrangement of questions. The impression sought to be conveyed by these questions was that Lowe was really in the robbery, that after he was arrested, the railroad and express companies, detectives, and the police tried to get him to confess, that Lowe would not tell anything about it, that they used every inducement they could to get him to confess, promising him immunity and part of the reward, and convincing him that they had him dead to rights, and threatening to convict him sure unless he confessed, that the detectives kept asking him if he knew Jesse James and Jack Kennedy, and gave him to understand if he would implicate Jesse James in it, he would be given immunity, that then Lowe did make an alleged confession, protecting the men who were really in the robbery, and telling that Jesse James, Ryan, Polk, and Stone were in it. "'When did you first see any of these detectives?' asked Mr. Walsh. "'One came to my house and represented that he was working for the claim department of the street railway, and that I was witness to an accident on the 12th Street incline, and that he wanted to talk with me about it. I knowed right away that he was a detective.' "'When did you see him next?' "'When they came to arrest me, some time after that.' "'Where did they take you?' "'To the Savoy Hotel.' Lowe told this story this morning in answer to questions of how he came to confess to the police. They took me from the Savoy to Number 3 police station and locked me up. I was there several days, and then they took me to the Westport station. For fourteen days they kept after me, telling me each visit they made, the evidence they had against me, and it was good straight evidence, too. They kept getting after me stronger and stronger all the time. They brought my wife down to see me, and she told me she had told the police all she knew. They wouldn't let me see an attorney, nor no one else, and they kept telling me what they had agin me. Finally, I asked to see my brother, and he came and advised me to tell all, and I did so. Didn't they promise you immunity? No, sir. Didn't they promise you a reward? No, sir. Weren't you indicted for this train robbery jointly with Jesse James? I don't know. Do you mean to say you don't know? No, I don't know. Wasn't a copy of the indictment served on you? It might have been. I don't remember. Didn't you know that under that first joint indictment, the state would have to discharge you before you could go on the stand and testify? 
No, I didn't know. You know that they had you and Jesse and the others indicted separately afterward, and that now they can use you as a witness without first discharging you? I don't know. The theory of the defense on this point is that Lowe and Jesse James were indicted separately so that the state could use the indictment as a club over Lowe's head to force him to testify. Where have you boarded in Westport since your arrest? asked Walsh. I've taken my meals at the Harris house. Haven't you gone out bird hunting since your arrest? I went down the railroad track with an officer. I had a cartridge gun and was shooting grasshoppers. Did Detective Harbaugh tell you that a reward was offered for the conviction of the robbers, or one of them, and that he would divide it with you? No, sir. Didn't they promise you immunity? No, sir. Didn't Chief Hayes advise you to confess? Yes. Did he make any promises? He said if I would confess, it would go light with me. He said he would make no promises except that he would use his influence. My brother came and advised me to tell it all, too. Didn't the officers keep asking you before you confessed if you knew Jesse James? Yes, they asked me once, and I told them I knew him. Didn't they tell you they had evidence against Jesse James and Jack Kennedy? No, I think not. When you first told about this robbery, did you tell the names of all who were in it? Yes. Mr. Walsh here began a new series of questions on a point which the defense thinks is a strong one in its favor. Who was it took the stuff out of the safe that night after you had set off the dynamite? The man they called Evans. Evans is the alias of the man supposed to be Bill Ryan. Did he get any money out of the car? I saw him get packages out. How big packages? Lowe pointed to two law books on a table and said, As big as the two of them together. You say that several times before this robbery, you stood at the Union Depot and saw them transferring money packages from an Omaha Express car to this one you robbed? I said I saw them transfer packages I thought was money. Was the package Evans took out the same shape and size? Yes, it looked just like it. What did Evans do with the package he took from the safe? Put it in a sack. How big a sack? About a two-bushel sack. What did he do then? He swung the sack over his shoulder and left. Did he go with you? No. Do you suppose it was money he got in that package? Yes. And you had never seen this man Evans before in your life? No. And never since? No. And you didn't know who he was? No. You let a stranger walk away with what you thought was the money after you had risked so much to rob the train? I supposed he was all right. Mr. Walsh questioned Lowe further about what occurred at and near the home of Jesse James when Lowe went there the night of the robbery. Lowe said he went to the house and inquired of Jesse's sister for Jesse. She told Lowe he had gone to put his aunt, Mrs. Palmer, on a streetcar to go to the Union Depot. Lowe sat down on the porch, and in a little while Jesse came to the back door and called him out to the back and pointed to a clump of trees and said the horse was tied there and for him to go over. Lowe went and found the horse, which was restless. Lowe unhitched the horse and drove it around the block. Jesse came and said he had been to a drug store to show himself so as to fix an alibi. Jesse and Lowe started in the buggy and picked up Andy Ryan at 35th Street. They drove out a ways and caught up to the other two men in a buggy. One of these said everything was all right. The big man, meaning Evans, would be out at the scene of the robbery. 
That ended the cross-examination by Mr. Walsh. Prosecutor Reed asked Lowe if he and Jesse and Ryan talked on the drive back to town about the money got in the robbery. Yes, said Lowe. Ryan told me they didn't get anything. He said too much dynamite was used, and it blew everything to the devil. I told him I didn't believe Evans got nothing. I believed he got something. Lowe said that he went to the jail last August when this robbery was planned in response to a letter from Kennedy. Is this the letter? asked Mr. Reed, handing him an envelope and letter. Yes, sir, that's it. The letter was shown to the jury. The envelope was addressed in ink. Mr. Bill Lowe, 1001 West 16th Street, Kansas City, Missouri. It was stamped and had passed through the mail and had been delivered to Lowe. It bore the postmark, Kansas City, Missouri, August 15th, 10 p.m., 98. The letter was written with a lead pencil on a sheet of note paper and was as follows. 8-15-98, K.C., Missouri. Mr. Willem Lowe. Dear Freen Bill, I thought at I would write you a few lines once for the first time. Say, Bill, when you get this, please come down if you can. Yours as ever, J.F. Kennedy. This is important evidence for the state if it is actually proved to be Kennedy's writing. The lawyers for the defense realized this and examined the letter closely. Mr. Farr showed it to Major Blake L. Woodson, who had once defended Kennedy on a charge of train robbery and was in the courtroom. Woodson said he thought it was not Kennedy's writing. Prosecutor Reed showed Lowe a card on the back of which this was written. We the masked knights of the road robbed the Missouri Pacific at the Beltline Junction tonight. The supply of quails was good. With much love, we remain John Kennedy, Bill Ryan, Bill Anderson, Sam Brown, Jim Redmond. We are XCOM Spectu. This card was handed to the express messenger by one of the robbers the night of the robbery. Prosecutor Reed asked Lowe, Did you ever see that card before? Yes. Where? The Sunday night before the robbery, we were at Andy Ryan's house, and Jesse showed me that very card. Edwin E. Hills, the express messenger who was held up, was the next witness, and part of his testimony was quite dramatic. He told what has never been made public before, exactly how much money was on the express car and how much the robbers got. It has always been a matter of speculation with the public as to how much was stolen that night. Hills, the messenger, says they got only $30. Hills is a man of about 30 with a sandy mustache. He talked in a very loud tone, giving straight, direct answers to questions. He said he was in charge of the express car the night of the robbery. Then he went on. As we stopped at the Beltline crossing the night of the robbery, I heard some talk outside and a flag signal of five blasts. I heard the word injector spoken outside the car. In a minute or two, the car started again, and I noticed it was not the usual motion of the train. I looked out and saw the balance of the train behind us and just the express car attached to the engine. I made up my mind we were being held up. I got my shotgun and laid it on my box and hid my personal valuables. The car stopped and someone knocked on the door and with an oath said, Open a door or we'll blow your car to hell. I parlayed with them and looked out. I saw the forms of several men. I heard someone say, We'll get to dynamite and blow him up. I told them, Never mind, boys, I'll open up. They ordered me to put up my hands. I put them up. One climbed up and ordered me back in the end of the car. Another got in. 
Hills told about how they placed the little safe on top of the dynamite on the big safe and blew it up and tried to make him stay in the car when the explosion occurred. He described the explosion, which knocked him flat where he stood by the engine. He said as the robbers left, one of them handed him a card. Prosecutor Reed showed him the card introduced in evidence a short time before and identified by Lowe. Hills said, The leader handed me that card and told me to show it to the newspapers in the morning. Describe the leader, the one who got in the car and did so much talking, said Prosecutor Reed. He had on a black mask, dark coat like a Macintosh, that came almost to his heels, and he carried a double-barreled shotgun when he first got in the car. What money did you have in the car that night? One sack of silver with $1,000 in it, a package of $590 in currency, two COD packages containing $18, and two packages of government war bonds, amounting to $560. How much of this was recovered? All but $30 of the silver dollars, which were lost. The other packages were recovered intact. Did you get a good chance to observe the leader who was in the car with you? The best chance I had was while he was in the rear of the car, where the light was quite dim. He wore a black mask of glazed oilcloth. Prosecutor Reed showed the glazed mask found in the weeds near the scene of the robbery and identified by Lowe yesterday as very much like the one worn by Jesse James. Hill said it was like the one worn by the leader. Describe the leader's appearance. He was a small man, five feet six or seven inches tall, weighing 130 to 145 or 150 pounds. He had very sharp, piercing eyes and a nose rather prominent. At the request of Prosecutor Reed, Jesse James stood up and looked, without a trace of nervousness, straight at the witness. How did the leader's height compare with the height of the defendant? asked Prosecutor Reed. I should say he was about the same height. How does he compare as to breadth of shoulders? About the same. He bore a general resemblance to the man who just stood up. You say you noticed the leader's eyes. How does the defendant's eyes compare with them? The robber's eyes were large and piercing eyes, as this man has. Is the defendant the man that was there that night and wore the coat and mask? I am unable to state. Hills then told the following story, giving it with good dramatic gestures, imitations, and general effect. The next afternoon after the robbery, I went to the courthouse to get a good look at Jesse James and see if he was the man who held me up. Who told you to go? Superintendent Moore of the Pacific Express. Tell what occurred. I went in the courthouse and Jesse was not there. I strolled around and soon he came in and went behind his cigar stand. I walked up and looked him square in the eye and said, I want a cigar. I looked square into his eyes and he dropped his eyes and raised them and dropped them again. I found fault with the cigar he handed me and said, Young man, I was out late last night and I'm a little nervous. I want a nice, mild cigar to settle my nerves. He reached in and got one and I paid him. As he handed me the change, he said in a deep tone of voice, Thank you, sir. Did his voice resemble any you had ever heard before? No, it was not his natural voice even. Court adjourned for noon at this point. End of chapter 11, part 2